Welcome to Open Spaces from Wyoming Public Radio News. I'm Bob Beck. And I'm Caroline Ballard. Today on Open Spaces, 37 UW workers will lose their jobs following graduation. These were good people doing good jobs and really, many cases, really deeply loved the university. Wyoming arts organizations remain nervous that federal funding could get eliminated. I don't even know what to call it, a disaster. It would really, it, it would be dire for the culture. And we'll experience the exciting countdown until gates open for antler hunting season. So you know what we call tonight, uh, Redneck Black Friday. Is that right? Those stories and more are all coming up on Open Spaces from Wyoming Public Radio News. Welcome to Open Spaces from Wyoming Public Radio News. I'm Bob Beck. And I'm Caroline Ballard. At the May meeting of the UW Board of Trustees, President Lori Nichols announced that 37 University of Wyoming staff members would lose their jobs to meet budget cuts. Wyoming Public Radio's education reporter Tennessee Watson says folks are worried about how the state's only public university is holding up. All across campus, staff are working to get the class of 2017 graduated and on to their next venture. One of the workers getting a PA system set up for graduation is John Wilhelm. He says for staff, news of layoffs is causing some anxiety. People hope that they won't lose their job. Nobody wants to be unemployed. But uh, I feel like people have been unsure about that for over a year now. In 2016, the Wyoming State Legislature announced UW would have to take a $40 million cut. 80% of the university's budget is personnel, so job loss has been on the table since the beginning. On Thursday, the bad news was confirmed when President Lori Nichols told the Board of Trustees that after graduation, 37 staff members would lose their jobs. Staff Senate Vice President Rachel Stevens says no one knows how the layoffs will be distributed across campus. Which positions they are and in which areas, and that is something that we're continuing to look for until all of the layoff notices go out. The layoffs were a last resort. They've already offered incentivized retirement programs to faculty and staff. Between these different strategies, 369 positions will be eliminated. But Staff Senate Vice President Rachel Stevens thinks the overall turnover may be much higher when it's all said and done. And Wendy Perkins says as folks leave, there's no clear plan as to how those who stay are to handle more work. She's been at the university for 16 years. She's gone from being office manager for one program to managing four. This university is a good university as far as you have friendly people and you have people who, who will go the extra mile, who will put the effort in. But they do so because they feel like they're a part of something important. And when you take that away then it's just a job that you come in, you do the job, the minimal amount of effort you have to, and you leave. Perkins says she is seeing faculty and staff leave who did not take the voluntary retirement incentive, so they would not be included in the 369 quoted by the university. Snehalada Bazar, a statistics professor, is one of them. I moved here in 1995, and I moved here because I wanted to live in the West again. Hooser Bazaar left a higher-paying tenure-track job in Georgia because she loves Wyoming. 
I mean, my friends elsewhere in the Mountain West, our friends at CSU at New Mexico, we all joke about, you know, this is the scenery tax. Our salaries are lower than elsewhere, but we can go hiking. But after 22 years at a university she loves, she's decided to take a position at West Virginia University in another coal state. But she says the university was prepared to handle the downturn of coal differently. And she says she knows others driven away by UW's instability who were immediately rehired. So, you know, we're not losing people that no one else wants. <laughs> these, these, these were people that were incredibly marketable. And that self-selection may be affecting some departments more than others, according to Professor Bieber, who chaired the Financial Crisis Committee, charged with figuring out how to make cuts for the fiscal year 2018. I had the great pleasure of working with the president and the provost all the way down to whomever on the campus during the crisis process. I I interacted with everyone from all levels. He says efforts to make workforce reductions were hard because there was not a pre-existing strategic plan and it was evident that not everyone had access to the same information. The farther you got removed, the more it enabled you to be alienated or feel lost in the process and certainly morale was affected more there. But Bieber is optimistic that the university is learning from its mistakes. President Nichols, who's only been at the university a year, quickly drafted a strategic plan, which Bieber says acknowledges a critical need to gather more data and for information to be openly available across campus, which he says will help the university be more strategic and less reactionary in the future. These were not people who were poor performers. These were good people doing good jobs and really, many cases, really deeply loved the university. I mean, I know custodians. I know people that work in physical plant, and I've known faculty. I mean, people that just love the University of Wyoming. Uh, Some of them have lost their jobs or left the university. I'm sorry and it pains me that we've lost the university that we have. And I go, okay, you have to agree, you have to honor that, and you have to move on. Sadly, positive changes coming from this crisis have come too late for the 37 staff members the university will say goodbye to in the coming weeks. For Wyoming Public Radio, I'm Tennessee Watson. Is the energy industry stifling free speech in Wyoming? That's the question University of Wyoming professor Dr. Jeff Lockwood explores in a new book called Behind the Carbon Curtain. He says the industry suppresses critical artwork, research, and school curriculums. Wyoming Public Radio's Cooper McKim reports on the line between censorship and business as usual. In late 2011, English sculptor Chris Drury visited the University of Wyoming's campus. I went for about five days, I think. The school had commissioned artwork from him, though he still hadn't decided what to make. As he spoke with locals around Laramie, Drury learned how trees in the Rockies were dying due to warmer winters from climate change. He wanted to draw a connection between the tree's downfall and the state's contribution to global warming through the coal, oil, and gas industries. On UW's campus, Drury began his piece dug a shallow 36-foot circle to begin the installation. So it's this vast whirlpool of logs and coal disappearing down into the earth, which is 
why it's called carbon sink. Soon after, a story came out in a Gillette newspaper about carbon sink. Readers were not happy. And they immediately got on the phone to the coal board and also to the politicians and um, all hell broke loose, really. People wanted it down. Legislators threatened to pull funding from the university. Wyoming Public Radio reported that UW President Tom Buchanan emailed the art museum director asking for the installation to be removed early. I was totally taken aback. You know, I think normally nobody never takes any notice at all of what I do. And suddenly, you know, there was this great furore about it. The school removed carbon sink less than a year after it was installed. They demanded uh, the removal and destruction of that, that artwork, and the university complied. Um, in what seems to be a, an explicit and um, abhorrent act of, of censorship. That's Dr. Jeff Lockwood. He recently published the book Behind the Carbon Curtain. In it, he claims Wyoming's energy industry uses its economic power to influence state politics. Coal, oil, gas, and uranium make up around 70% of the state's economy, after all. Students rely on the industry's revenue for low tuition rates, the government for programs like drug recovery clinics, public schools, infrastructure. But Lockwood argues this bankrolling has a dangerous price. So we've seen scientists fired and defunded. We've seen artists' work destroyed and censored. And we've seen educators informed that they were precluded from teaching um, some of the fundamental principles of science. He doesn't just blame energy companies for this, but state legislators, too, for supporting them. He accuses politicians of being too afraid to stand up for themselves or their constituents. We've been well taken care of. Um, do we want to bite the hand that feeds us? And you don't want to offend the company that's providing your source of wealth and income. Lockwood says there's a greater need for controversial discussions, like carbon sink, now more than ever. He claims the fossil fuel industry is in a permanent decline. If it does disappear, he says Wyoming needs a more diversified economy. But for that to happen, there must be a diversity of ideas, too. John Robitaille is vice president at the Petroleum Association of Wyoming. He says Lockwood's claims are overblown and that the energy industry does not suppress free speech. In fact, he says he hears constant criticism. What we're doing is, is ultimately playing defense uh, against things that are coming out and, and making it uh, increasingly difficult to uh, actually produce a product that is, is needed and necessary in this country. Robitaille says people like him in the industry want to have open conversations, but their opponents don't give them the chance. That there are folks out there that, uh, that just have their opinion and, and uh, have a closed mind about it. And, and that makes it extremely difficult to understand the other person's point of view. Senate Minority Leader and University of Wyoming Professor Chris Rothfuss says he doesn't think the energy industry is widely suppressing free speech, at least not entirely. Politicians tend to vote in favor because that's what their districts support. Our, our biases, I guess you would say, and, and the constituencies that we represent and the interests that we represent, I, I don't know if I would say that anybody is in anyone else's pocket. In his book, Lockwood points to energy-related contributions to political campaigns as a serious issue. Rothfuss has been a state senator for six years. He says his colleagues really aren't getting that much money, a few thousand dollars at most in campaign contributions, certainly not enough to change a vote on a given issue. I would like to think that there's nobody in the Wyoming legislature that could ever be bought for $10,000. <laughs> it's absurd to think that somebody would sell out for, for that type of money, and, and I don't think they, they have. Rothfuss adds, energy lobbyists aren't particularly intimidating either, no more than their renewable energy counterparts anyway. 
He cites a call when there was a discussion about a tax on the wind industry. Uh, well, you can't do this to our industry. This would be bad. We need your support. This, uh, you know, we're going to leave Wyoming if, uh, if, if this type of policy moves forward. In the end, Rothfuss agrees the energy industry does have an outsized influence on the state. It does have well-resourced lobbyists, does make significant campaign contributions. That's not necessarily quashing free speech. Lockwood says the energy industry is no better or worse than another dominant one in his state say agriculture in Iowa or coal in West Virginia. But from his point of view, that influence must be curbed. And if we tolerate the loss of free speech, if we tolerate censorship, it has nothing but dire consequences for the health and well-being of the United States of America. And that's something that we all have a stake in. For Wyoming Public Radio, I'm Cooper McKim. When we come back, we'll hear about a review of oil and gas operations in Colorado after a fatal home explosion. This is Open Spaces. Welcome back to Open Spaces. I'm Caroline Ballard. And I'm Bob Beck. A fatal home explosion in northern Colorado is prompting a lot of questions in the state about how oil and gas wells are regulated and how close to old wells new homes should be built. A similar debate took place a few years ago in Wyoming. The explosion was linked to a leaking gas line running from a nearby well. The line was abandoned but not properly sealed. A statewide review of oil and gas operations is now underway. Inside Energy's Dan Boyce reports. Hey, girls, can you grab some groceries, please? Julia Chapman's just pulled into the garage of her home in Firestone, Colorado, about 30 miles north of Denver. The picture of a busy suburban mom. Two young daughters. Twin boys that are almost two. All of them blondies. Oldest daughter, Jillian, is 10. On the afternoon of April 17th, she and her sister were right here on their front porch. They'd just gotten permission to go play at her friend Jaylin's house. We were standing right there. We turned around and the house exploded. Jaylin's house, just across the street, two doors down. Seven has learned the remains of two people have been pulled from the rubble of this house explosion in Firestone. The house just split open. You could see the upstairs. It shook our home, our, you know, our walls. We came out and we saw that it was essentially collapsed on itself. Um, the installation was still floating in the air down the street. It turns out Jay Lynn was not home at the time, but her dad, Mark Martinez, and uncle Joey Irwin were in the basement. They were killed in the blast. Julia Chapman says when they bought their house, Neighboring oil and gas sites just weren't something they thought about. We just sort of trusted that the city and the oil and gas uh, knew what they were doing. What has taken place here is highly unusual. That's Colorado's chief oil and gas regulator, Matt Lepore, speaking at a recent press conference. He says the state is looking very hard at this and is lining out steps for action. To seek to absolutely minimize any possibility of this happening again. I'm driving around Firestone with anti-oil and gas activist Shane Davis. Let's wait for something to happen and then, then let's try to figure out how to fix it. It's too late at that point. Two people died. 
He runs a blog called Fractivist.org. 118 feet. Right there. He's pointing out the distances between oil and gas sites and buildings. And right here is only about 170 feet. Colorado's population is up half a million people since 2010. That means a lot of new home construction along the state's clustered front range, which also happens to be right where much of the oil and gas production is. Inside Energy Analysis finds over the past several years, 50,000 more people in Colorado now live in areas where there's at least one well per square kilometer. The Martinez home, which exploded, was built 178 feet from an existing dormant well. Anadarko Petroleum switched it back on in January of this year. And when they did, unrefined gas started flowing into an old one-inch plastic pipe called a flow line. It was supposed to be sealed, but it wasn't. The unscented gas seeped into the soil near the foundation of the Martinez home, filling the house through a drain in the basement. This is creepy. We pull up to the explosion site. It's the first time Shane Davis has seen it. And it's, it's pretty sad. Flowers have been placed on the ground and woven into a fence newly erected around the pile of debris that used to be a home. After the incident, all wells in the neighborhood were shut down, and Governor John Hickenlooper ordered statewide inspections of all flow lines within 1,000 feet of occupied buildings within 30 days. Right now, a comprehensive state map showing where these lines are does not exist. The state says there is no more danger for the surrounding properties. And Julia Chapman, from across the street, she says with all this heightened scrutiny... We're probably safer now than we've ever been. But more new homes keep going up. And while new oil wells must be drilled at least 500 feet from homes, there is no state regulation for how far new homes must be built from existing oil wells. In fact... Right behind the site of the Martinez home explosion, workers are busy with the construction of a new apartment complex with nearly 300 units. For Inside Energy, I'm Dan Boyce. Inside Energy is a public media collaboration focused on America's energy issues. Up, we'll talk with the celebrated Wyoming artist Nelji. Her memoir tells how she left the constrained life of high society for life outside the line. This is Open Spaces. This is Open Spaces. From Wyoming Public Radio News, I'm Bob Beck. And I'm Caroline Ballard. Earlier this month, those involved with arts organizations in the state were able to exhale after a proposal to zero out funding for the National Endowment for the Arts, Humanities, and similar organizations this year was averted. The proposal was part of President Trump's budget. But as Wyoming Public Radio's Bob Beck reports, 
the organizations will remain worried as the issue may come up again as early as this fall. At the University of Wyoming Art Museum, Susan Moldenhauer sits at a desk of neatly stacked brochures and contracts as she prepares for another year of exhibits. She is the director and chief curator at the facility. The UW Art Museum is one of the big dogs in the state when it comes to receiving federal funding. The museum gets federal arts, humanities, and library money for exhibits, programs, and special projects. It also gets state money and uses that public money to encourage donors to give. If the public money gets cut or goes away, it would have an impact. One of the fears is that it'll happen overnight. Um, if we say that happen overnight, you know, we, we come to a standstill for a while in terms of our programming. As a university museum, it stands to reason that some might come to the museum's rescue. But Moldenauer frets about what would happen to arts and cultural programming across the state. The state is experiencing its own financial challenge, and if both federal and Wyoming money gets cut, that would leave a mark. You know, Wyoming ranks right up there in terms of how many people are not just directly impacted, but directly involved in the arts. Um, of all kinds across Wyoming. So, you know, to see funding at both the state and federal level um, disappear would, would be, um, I don't even know what to call it, a disaster. It would really, it, the, it would be dire for the culture. The main statewide distributor of funding for arts in the state is the Wyoming Arts Council. The council gets about $850,000 a year in federal money, and the legislature matches that to the tune of a million dollars. Arts Council Director Mike Lang says that money gets distributed to nonprofit organizations statewide who use it as seed money to get additional dollars. We know for every dollar of uh, public funding we put in, uh, the local communities raise an extra $35 to put on those, uh, those grant activities around the state. But without that public funding, it's hard to raise additional money, especially in more isolated areas. Between that and the small population, the amount of access for large giving is smaller than in other areas of the country. That would certainly have an impact in Kemmer, where Ellen Potter runs the Frontier Arts Council. She says the state and federal money they receive makes a huge difference. Music and the art is so important to have a great quality of life. And I don't think it matters if you live in Salt Lake or if you live in a place like Diamondville that's next door to us that has 792 people, it makes a difference in their quality of their life. And not only that, it makes a difference in children's lives and how they learn. Potter points out that her area also gets funding for the Oyster Ridge Music Festival and three other festivals. And without that money, she says the local economy would suffer. You know, we have a small downtown and a lot of them make a lot of money during those festivals that holds them over till the next year for festivals. And that may not be happening. Steve Shrepferman of Cody serves on the Wyoming Arts Council and the Wyoming Arts Alliance. He worries that the loss of the National Endowment for the Arts money could have a ripple effect. NEA funding is given to all of the states, but each state legislature must match those funds dollar for dollar. If the NEA is eliminated and that funding's not there, there's no incentive for state legislatures to 
support the arts. He notes that state and federal money both fund children's education programs across the state. Since those programs don't raise money, he fears that they could be the first to go if there were funding reductions. Some say that arts funding should come from communities, but with funding cuts throughout the arts and nonprofit world, Schrepferman says private money will be hard to come by. The hands that are extended for donations are large, <laughs> or many, I guess is what I probably should say. And um, with, the, I think, the concerns about the economy, people are kind of conservative about what they give. And I don't know that we're going to see that replaced. The Arts Council's Mike Lang says that will lead to a disparity across the state, where larger programs and communities will be able to get funding, and smaller programs in rural areas will likely disappear. He says saying goodbye to something that helps the economy at little cost does not make a lot of sense. The next vote on the issue is scheduled for this fall. For Wyoming Public Radio, I'm Bob Beck. Not only would federal funding cuts hurt the arts, but President Trump's first budget proposal also called for totally zeroing out federal funding for the humanities, which could disproportionately hurt rural states like Wyoming. Correspondent Matt Laszlo reports that such cuts could have a tough time getting support from Wyoming senators. Each year, Wyoming gets more than half a million dollars in federal grants. Last year, some of that money went to a mobile museum that toured the state teaching students and adults alike about the state's heritage. Wyoming Senator John Barrasso says he doesn't like that the president is calling to end the program. Humanities and arts are very important all around the the country, certainly in Wyoming. And uh, there's a commitment of the people of Wyoming uh, and of the delegation to make sure we continue with that. Shannon Smith is the executive director for Wyoming Humanities. She says she was bracing for calls for steep budget cuts. But she was floored when she saw the president's first slimmer budget. We, you know, I, I can't lie. We were, we were shocked. I mean, we, we knew that there would be, you know, some tension in this area. But when the quote unquote skinny budget came out, we were um, surprised at how blatant it was. Smith says states along the coast, like New York and California, would be fine if they lost federal humanities funding. But she says it would hit Wyoming like a punch in the gut. The rural states are going to be the ones hit the hardest. Most of the larger urban states are going to have the capacity to continue on without this federal funding. They'll find ways to, you know, they have lots of foundations, private donors. They have a larger pool of people from which to ask for funding. Smith says Wyoming needs the National Endowment of Humanities, or NEH, funding because most of its residents aren't the millionaires and billionaires who reside elsewhere. When you're in a state like Wyoming with a population of 580,000, cut out the kids, you know, cut out people that, you know, don't have the kind of money to be, you know, philanthropic. Our market is very, very small, and there is just no way to replace the funding we receive from the NEH. But Wyoming has an ally on the issue with senior Senator Mike Enzi, who chairs the Budget Committee. He says he's a big supporter of the arts and humanities. I always have. I was the founder of the Cultural Caucus with Senator Kennedy. Enzi says he's not worried by the budget proposal because Congress has the final say, and the arts always enjoy broad bipartisan support. The important part with any president's budget is that's a list of suggestions to Congress. The Constitution says that the spending is done by Congress. 
the budget that Congress does is the one that has the uh, overlying effect. So you can't go by what he's suggesting. Still, Enzi says he can't promise the arts and humanities won't face a budget cut next year. I wouldn't, I wouldn't say. <laughs> you, can't, you can't tell until we get into all the details of what, what stays and what goes. But Enzi is optimistic that arts and humanities funding will survive mostly intact. There's support for the humanities. Most of that money actually gets out of D.C., which is one of the criteria. The more money that stays in D.C., the less favorable any program is going to be. That's one of the things we'll be looking at. The White House is promising to hold firm on many of the president's agenda items in the upcoming spending negotiations. But it's unclear if the arts are on the top of their list of programs to cut. For Wyoming Public Radio, I'm Matt Laszlo in Washington. The celebrated Wyoming artist Nelchie has led a storied life. Last fall, she released a memoir, North of Crazy chronicles her journey from high society to the high plains. As the daughter of famed publisher Nelson Doubleday, Nelchie had a privileged life, growing up in her family's homes in New York, Long Island, and South Carolina. But as an adult, she left society life and moved to her adopted home near Sheridan, where she still lives. Nelchie spoke with Wyoming Public Radio's Micah Schweitzer in December. I mean, reading your book, it's it's like reading some sort of period drama, right? This yes. is the kind of thing I watch on PBS. <laughs> yeah, a little bit. It's a, it's a mini um, Thornton Abbey. <laughs> exactly. You read this and it sounds like, like the charmed life, and yet it seems like perhaps it was not entirely the charmed life. For me, it wasn't a charmed life. Um, I, th- I was lucky to live in a house where there was big rooms, um, a swimming pool, tennis court. There were all the um, attributes of wealth, but there was not a wealth of love. There was That was a vacuum. This seems like the classic anecdote any successful artist can tell is that, of course, at some point in your early life, you're told that that's not who you are. You failed art in third grade. Yeah, I failed art in the third grade. Now, how you do that, I, I wouldn't stay in the lines. I didn't, I didn't make clear colors. And part of that was simply being too nervous, too scared. I was molested when I was nine, and nobody talked about it. It just sort of disappeared. Um, I was sent to a psychiatrist for a short time, and then nothing. And as you hear now, because there are many, there's something like over 75% of women have been sexually abused in some form. So I'm not, I'm not unique by any means. Um, but it takes a long time to get over it, and you don't get over it all, ever. When you're nine years old and somebody, the man threatens to kill you if you set, tell anybody, it's a The voice is there. I also had been given um, hormones so that I would stop growing because I was the size, I was five foot nine at nine years old. And um, those hormones made me a woman. They were trying to get me to have a period at a point when I was much too young. And this was what, so you wouldn't be too tall? Yeah, because my father didn't want me to be six foot tall. That's what I was told. And he didn't want anybody, he didn't want a woman on equal footing in any way. Height, mind, looks, 
He was an old-fashioned man. But that was also the world you grew up in. I mean, as you point out in the book, it was a, in every way, a male-dominated world. Absolutely. I've noticed it still is. Nelchi got married when she was 18. Less than 10 years later, she was divorced. And she moved to Wyoming in 1966, where she took an art class at Sheridan College. The Japanese sumi. This is an ink technique, right? Yes, the ink on uh, rice paper. And I learned to do all the classic things, how to make bamboo, how to do plum, how to do bamboo leaf. And I didn't want any of it, but I could do what I wanted to do. I could take what my feeling was from my gut inside, and I could lay it down. And I learned that the stroke, the mark you make on a piece of paper is the mark you make in life. It doesn't disappear. You can put another one down over it. But the first one is always there. And that was a philosophical lesson that was, to me, vitally important. And that has been um, the foundation of all my paintings. Everything is the mark comes from there, right in the solar plexus. And people say to me, well, do you think of something before you paint? Do you, do you have an image in mind? Do you have a subject in mind? And I, I don't. A good deal of the time, I don't. And you have to be willing to make a terrible mess. And I've made a lot of those. But that's the way it is. That's the way you work. Um, I'm an abstract expressionist and... I paint the moment. I live in the moment. And in some sense, what you're doing in, in your large-scale works harkens back to, to not wanting to draw the bamboo or the bamboo leaf, or even before that, in third grade, not being able to draw within the lines. Oh, exactly. I ain't staying there. Not happening. <laughs> it does seem that, that a certain amount of your work does fall within two broad categories. You have uh, what could be considered landscapes. Yep. And then also about women. Well, they're my two subjects. That's all I know anything about. All the rest is um, conjecture. When it comes to painting about women, that's that's about you and about the world that you live in, that's about the relationship. That's the way women are treated. Mm-hmm. Yes, that's really about the way women are treated. And for so long, we couldn't say anything. And the anger that I had, and still have, at the way women are treated, and the um, condescending nature that many men address women, um, particularly Donald Trump, I find um, to be insufferable. You can't get anybody to hear you. And I think that's like being imprisoned. And those are those black bars that are on a lot of your women paintings. Yeah. Well, the black bars on the one that are on the side of those are what entraps you. Yes, exactly. You read them right. And you started painting when you were 30. Yeah. This is after your divorce, uh, after, after your nervous breakdown following your divorce. Uh, mm-hmm. What drove you to paint? I wanted a voice for my anger. I wanted to be able to speak, and I couldn't. And once I 
once I got free with the sumi and I could make the marks of energy and of love and of joy and of delight and of curiosity and of dynamic um, electricity attached to nothing, I could, I could speak. I had a voice. And I remember the feeling of when I got that voice. It was overwhelming. It flooded right through me to every single, to the ends of my fingertips, to my toes, to the end of my nose, to my earlobe, everywhere. And I had nobody I could tell it to. And so I just went out and screamed. <laughs> <laughs> Literally. Yes, I just went out in the yard and screamed. Yeah. And if uh, the size of one's painting is is maybe indicative of volume, your 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 voice has gotten loud. You're doing ten by thirty foot paintings now. They're very comfortable for me. They're about my size because I use my whole body when I paint, and it's like a dance. And once I get rolling, it takes over. I find four foot by four foot canvases small. Hmm. Now, well, the first canvas I had was maybe three inches by two inches. And I was too shy to even look up and look at it on the wall of a gallery. Three inches by two inches. Yes. So what changed between three inches by two inches and, and 10 feet by 30 feet? I learned, and I did a lot of interior work. I realized I had so much pain and anger and frustration uh, from being ignored as a child and on feeling unloved and feeling abandoned that I had to take care of that in order to grow up. I couldn't just pretend anymore. And the pains that were inside me had to be dealt with. That takes time. And that's what freed you up to, yeah. to, to grow artistically. And that you have to do that in order to be. In order to be. That's what you need to do. Nelty's memoir is called North of Crazy. She spoke with Wyoming Public Radio's Micah Schweitzer, and you can hear the full interview at wyomingpublicmedia.org. Ahead, we'll hear from one of the honorary degree recipients at UW's commencement, and we'll tag along on the opening day of antler shed season. This is Open Spaces. Welcome back to Open Spaces from Wyoming Public Radio News. I'm Bob Beck. And I'm Caroline Ballard. This weekend, the University of Wyoming awards degrees to thousands of undergraduate and graduate students. Two degrees are special, though. They're honorary doctorates. And at this year's commencement, one of the recipients of an honorary doctorate is philanthropist Paula Green Johnson. After growing up in Laramie and graduating from UW, Green Johnson made her mark by promoting women's equality and by fundraising for charitable organizations. She told me that the honor was a complete surprise. Well, President Nichols called me, and um, I don't think she even knows the story, but I, I looked on my caller ID. I was running late for a meeting, and I realized it was from the university, and I thought, I don't have time for this, and I left. My husband happened to come home on, for something, and he listened to the message and called me and asked me, said, you better be calling the um, president, and he knew nothing as well 
and I just said, you know, I don't know that I want to call her because she's probably wanting me to go on a committee. I don't want to go on a committee. I, I'm, I have too much on my plate right now. Well, he pretty much insisted you cannot, you know, brush off the president of the University of Wyoming. And I agreed, and I called her. And I, was, I think I was in such shock, I said very little. I'm not sure she knew that I understood what it was, but I did. I just had nothing to respond with. It was such a shock. Being from Laramie and Wyoming and the University of Wyoming, I can't even imagine how I, I even got to this point. But, but this particular award probably means the most to me just because it's an honor for me to represent the university and the state of Wyoming. We left Wyoming when we graduated from college, but we've, Laramie's never left us. The university has never left us in our hearts. What drew you to philanthropy in the first place? Well, I had really two great examples. Number one, I like to point out that my mother and father set the example for me from a very young age. My father understood the power of numbers, and he joined groups. My mother, on the other hand, didn't join groups, but she knew when someone was suffering, and she made sure that she could help as best she could. Uh, My parents owned Green's Food Market. I grew up in a very lovely middle-class family, grew to love the people who shopped with my father and mother, and they were unbelievable uh, examples. The other example I point to is I grew up in an era, I was probably 14 years old when President John Kennedy was inaugurated, and he um, challenged the American people. And I'm sure you know the quote, ask not what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country. And I have always lived by that. Your work has focused uh, specifically on social justice for women. Why did that kind of become your focus? Well, I'll tell you why. I grew up in a very liberal family as far as women's issues. Uh, My father and mother pushed me to become whatever I could be. Uh, The university was great. I never felt that I was uh, lacking anything being a woman. But when I graduated and got out in the real world, I realized that the world didn't think as much of me as a woman as they did a man. And I just vowed from that point on I would figure out what I can do So the next generation of women can go to college where they want to be. They can get a job that they want. They can get any degree they want. They can go into the military. They can go into the military academies. Um, I wanted to make sure that my nieces would be welcome anywhere that my son would be welcome. Since you started working in philanthropy and, and with women's issues, have you seen real progress made? I have seen progress. It's not fast enough for me. I'm a little impatient in life, and I think we should be there. I've been doing this since 1971, and I expected to be there before the turn of the century. Yes, things have improved. Our daughters can go to a military academy. They can go into the military. They can go to Harvard or anywhere they want to go. I have definitely seen some improvement. We just need more. What What does more look like for you? More progress. Um, For example, I sit on many um, non-for-profit boards, and a good board will have 30% women on it, and and that is a big improvement from 25 years ago. Until it's 50%, I don't feel that I've succeeded, and I want to see the Supreme Court with a minimum of four women. 
Paula Green Johnson is a University of Wyoming honorary degree recipient this year. Paula, it was a pleasure speaking with you. Thank you, Caroline. Wyoming may be in the middle of an energy bust, but there's one industry that's quietly booming, the shed antler business. More and more people are discovering how lucrative picking up deer and elk antlers can be. But that's led to more out-of-season poaching of antlers and even accidents. Hundreds of people lined up for the season's opening day may first, and Wyoming Public Radio's Melody Edwards was there. It's 6 o'clock in the evening on what may be one of Wyoming Game and Fish game warden Kyle Lash's busiest nights of the year. He parks his truck and pulls out his binoculars. This is a nice glassing spot. I can sit here and glass the other side of that hillside but see if I can catch anybody hiking around over on that far hillside. He just got a call reporting that some people with backpacks and binoculars were spotted hiking into an off-limits wildlife wintering area. He shows me the area on the map. And so as you can see here on this map, see all the dark purple? Yeah. Those are actually our winter range areas that we've kind of designated as an area where elk and deer and, and any local wildlife would kind of be wintering. Those are closed off from, um, oh, December 1st to April 30th, and then tonight at midnight they'll open up. In the winter, people can't enter this area because wildlife need these slopes where the snow melts off and they can graze. Lash says when people sneak into them, animals hide in the trees where they can't dig through the snow to eat. Lash says that's especially true this year. We, we had an extremely difficult and hard winter here in Jackson. And that means antler hunters are likely to find lots of valuable deadheads. Those are antlers still attached to the skull of a dead animal, and they're worth big bucks, excuse the pun, to antler buyers. And so tonight, the temptation to get out onto those winter ranges is fierce. It even drives people to poaching. Last year, the game and fish apprehended some of the biggest antler poachers and slapped them with steep fines, as high as $1,000. But for guys like Don Horder, $1,000 doesn't compare to how much he can make picking up antlers. It's now around 9 o'clock, it's drizzling, and Horder is sitting in a line of trucks waiting at a winter range gate for midnight. Horder doesn't just collect antlers, he buys and sells them too. Back when we first started picking up horns, you know, brown elk horns were going for four or five, maybe six dollars a pound, and you couldn't even hardly sell the white ones. Now the uh, brown ones go for thirteen dollars a pound, and the white ones go for eight. Order knows a guy who made thirty thousand dollars in two months picking up antlers. He says right now the market can't get enough antlers. He sells the best chocolate brown ones for chandeliers and furniture in Jackson. As for the white ones... A lot of it's driven by the dog chews, and there's always been exporting to um, overseas, China, uh, Korea, those kind of places. They buy it for medicinal use. In Asia, antlers are ground down and made into a gel that people consume to increase their virility and sports performance. Now it's 11 at night. Hundreds of trucks and horse trailers are lined up at the National Elk Refuge Gate all the way back to the Jackson Town Square with its famous antler arches. Trent Purser drove here from Idaho. He says he has no plans to sell his antlers. Yeah, we hope the price goes down. Then people won't go. More for us. Purser says he wishes Wyoming would just sell an antler hunting permit and put an end to the craziness of opening night. And it is crazy. Two years ago, a boat capsized and a horse was killed crossing the Grovant River on opening night.
people can be just as successful if they wait a few hours, lessen the risk of tweaking an ankle or getting lost. That's National Elk Refuge spokesperson Lori Iverson. But when midnight arrives, the Elk Refuge opens its gates and streams of vehicles drive through to reach the National Forest on the other side. But Iverson says there's no stopping on the refuge allowed. It's illegal to pick up antlers here. She says their staff and a local Boy Scout troop pick them all up instead. And then at the end of May, the refuge hosts an antler auction on the town square. Yeah, our record year, the number of antlers sold in 2014 was 13,000 pounds of antlers. It's, uh, it's a pretty impressive sight when they're all laid out on the uh, street in downtown Jackson along the town square. The deadheads and antler pairs sell for hundreds of dollars, but bidders also buy white antlers by the truckload. People drive away with 10,000 pounds of antlers. At $10 a pound, that's $100,000 worth of dog chews. I finally reach the winter range gate. In the pitch black, people on horseback and foot are making a run for the mountainsides, literally. It's like an Easter egg hunt for grown-ups. The hills look like Las Vegas, spotlights and flashlights squiggling everywhere. Hi, cool. I'm a reporter for Wyoming Public Radio. Yeah. Uh -huh. If I could uh, tag along with you guys while you go out for just a little while. Sure. That's Casey Bryan. He and his 16-year-old nephew drove 12 hours from Washington State to get here for this. So what's your, uh, what's your strategy? Uh, <laughs> just go where no one else is going. <laughs> Their other strategy is sweeping their flashlights over the sagebrush for antler tines sticking up. I try to keep up, but soon Brian and his nephew disappear into the dark. The next morning, I return to see how everybody did. All right, we got a six-point deadhead here, and we got three other little six-points here. Wow. That was a pretty good day. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Casey Allison and his friends drove three hours from Montana. They found a spectacular deadhead. What did you think when you saw it? Oh, I pulled it out of the ground. I was like, holy mackerel, it's pretty big elk. What time, what time of night did you find it? Probably like 2.30. 2.30 in the morning? Yeah. They might have as much as $1,000 worth of antlers in their truck bed. You guys planning on selling these, or are these things that you want to keep? Uh, I'll probably keep them this I'll year. I'll probably keep mine. They say it's not about the money. It's about the hunt. The Elk Refuge will host its 50th anniversary antler auction on the Jackson Town Square on May 20th. For Wyoming Public Radio, I'm Melody Edwards. Thank you for listening to this edition of Open Spaces. If you'd like to hear the entire program or individual segments, go to our website at wyomingpublicmedia.org. You can also sign up for our podcast on that website or get it from iTunes. And if you get the podcast, then we'd appreciate it if you'd rate it and write a comment. We'd love it if you liked our Wyoming Public Radio News Facebook page. And if you have good story ideas, you can submit those through our Facebook page or our website. Open Spaces is a production of Wyoming Public Radio News.